0: Welcome to episode three. Harris and I are gonna talk about content marketing and it's a really broad overview, but we hope it gives you some ideas on how you can approach marketing for your own business. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. What's new?
1: Well, kicking off some new projects, some new clients in the new year, which I'm excited about. And it's given me an opportunity to really dig deep into uh, some tools. And so I have been using uh, HubSpot for my CRM. And so I use it myself and I've got a number of clients who are using it as well. And I've been helping them really kind of take full advantage of the features around lists, uh, tasks, basically automating that some of that workflow on the sales process side. And particularly early on for clients, you know, my recommendation is that they be really hands-on with their customers and really communicate frequently with their customers and try to learn with them. And so the projects that I'm kicking off right now are really focused on using those tools effectively so that you can really focus on your customer. I think sometimes people worry that using tools is going to put distance between them and their customer. It's going to feel like technology is going to kind of get in the way. But I think if you do it the right way, you can actually take things and not have to remember them, not have to write them down. You can just use software to keep track of what you need to do so that when you're having that conversation, you can be really present uh, with your customer learning from them and why they're, why they're doing something. And so I've got like a couple of projects that are basically doing the same exact thing simultaneously. And so it's, it's really easy to kind of move between them because it's all very similar work right now.
0: That's a really good point about engaging with your customers and really listening to them. I think there could probably be an entire episode on that. Just this idea of before you start scaling up your marketing or sales efforts, figuring out what works. And that's a really cool idea. And I'd love to know more about HubSpot. I've played with it a little bit, so I'm going to table that conversation cause I want to go through content marketing first. And then I want to get your thoughts on HubSpot maybe at the end of this and, or it's a potentially an entirely separate episode that we do.
1: Yeah, and I think it's good that it come up here in this episode because HubSpot's inbound approach, you know, really necessitates doing content marketing. So I think that these tie in nicely. But Sean, what about you? What what's new? What are you working on? Uh,
0: what am I working on? I just finished four videos for two for Microsoft and two for DigiKey. I'm about to jump back into that development project that I talked about on the last time we did this segment where I'm creating some C++ software. I do want to bring up that I just finished Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. That was a fantastic book. I recommend you read it if you haven't, and anybody else read it. I love the book, but I will say take it with a grain of salt. I, I consider Malcolm Gladwell doing behavioral science, much like Mythbusters doing science, or excuse me, Malcolm Gladwell doing behavioral psychology, like Mythbusters doing science. There are a lot of great stories, he makes a good point, and it really forces you to question your assumptions, but I do recommend doing some extra research to understand all the nuances that go into the experiments that he references. In the book, he talks about this idea of defaulting to truth, where the whole idea is that when I'm talking to somebody, I assume that they're telling me the truth. And most of us go about our daily lives doing that, and it's a good thing as a, social contra- as a social construct. If we doubted everybody, it would make for a lot of interesting fights among people all the time. So I think defaulting to truth offers a lot of good benefits, but he talks about how that can be problematic if you don't fully understand somebody who might be lying to your face, right? If they lie to your face with a smile, then it's hard to pick that out. Um, Also, the same idea applies to transparency, where if they lie to your face with a smile, you can't pick up on the fact that they're lying. A lot of times we think that people lie and they have shifty eyes or they look away, and that's not always the case. Somebody who really knows what they're doing or really believes what they're doing will lie to you with a smile. And he talks about that, why that might be problematic, and also this idea of coupling that we, a lot of times humans have habits and will do things based around place and time not just that we do them regardless and all of these things contribute to why we have a hard time understanding other people and other cultures sometimes in fact he gives one example where computer examples perform better than judges for predicting who might flee or committing or committing another crime when they're out on bail now right he doesn't go into some of the problems right these algorithms could embed biases into the system that we've already established like racial profiling and whatnot but the idea is there that this idea that i'd need to look at somebody in the eyes to tell if they're telling me the truth that's not necessarily always the case and in fact it's wrong a lot of the times to our detriment so great book a lot of fun i love gladwell's work
1: yeah he's written quite a few good books over the years i've read a few of them i have not read uh I've not read his latest one, but uh, I had a family member who was reading it and we were talking about it over the holiday break. So I will have to check it out.
0: Yes, it's a good one. If you like his stuff and you like that idea of behavioral psychology, it's a lot of fun. All right, let's jump into content marketing. Here's our prepared segment. So for this, I want to give a broad overview of what makes up content marketing. There is so much that goes into it. And in fact, it's changing all the time. Even if you're an expert in one thing, it's probably gonna be different in like six months. And each of these sections, we can probably make into its own podcast. So just keep that in mind as we're going about this. I want this to be very broad. Somebody who is considering, hey, I wanna launch this product and I know I need to market it, but I don't know where to start. And we wanna give you some vocabulary and things that you might want to consider jumping into for that. So the first is to give a few definitions. Outbound marketing versus inbound marketing, and keep in mind that inbound marketing is really a term that was made up by HubSpot. So take it with a grain of salt, but the idea is there. Outbound marketing is when you think of traditional ads, right? Your TV commercials, your radio, your newspaper, your billboards, anything where you're just throwing a brand in front of somebody and trying to make a quip or a funny sentence that they'll remember. This also applies to things like internet ads. Basically, anytime you have to pay to force your brand in front of people is outbound marketing. So Google ads, Facebook ads, site banners, things like that. Also things like sponsorship. So if you want to sponsor a conference like the Open Hardware Summit coming up in March, right? You get your name up there and maybe they have a banner, welcome to Open Hardware Summit, and you get your name up there. There's, you can also sponsor podcasts, anything like that. All considered outbound marketing. The thing is, is this is kind of a dying breed. It's a very hard to measure for your return on interest. You can blast all the media you want. You can spend a lot of time coming up with funny logos, quips, songs, whatnot. And you aim for top of mind awareness. You know, when you think of, I want a refreshing beverage, you think of Coca-Cola because they blast you with all of their media. The question is, think about it for yourself. How often do you pay attention to billboard ads or banner ads on a site, right? When was the last time you clicked on one? When was the last time you drove past a billboard and really noted it to your brain? Not just, oh, that's a billboard, but you're like, yeah, I'll call that guy when I'm next time I'm in an auto accident, right? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but just pay attention to how much you're doing because that'll inform you what your customers might also be doing. Right. What's good marketing for you probably also applies to your customers. And I don't think that outbound marketing is useless. I think it's still useful, but I think we're giving away to this idea of inbound marketing you can still use outbound marketing to help you identify an audience. What does your audience engage with? What do they like? What do they click on? So it can be a useful tool if even if you're planning a lot of content for inbound marketing. So Harris, I wanted to ask you, have you used outbound for some of your clients? If so, have you found or what have you found to be successful? Definitely, and I
1: think also it's worth noting there's some overlap, and I think you were just speaking to this too, where you can use a traditional advertising technique and maybe to get someone's attention, get them to hit a landing page, and then maybe once they land on that landing page, then they're registering to attend a webinar, registering to receive your newsletter, signing up for a demo of a product, Uh, and then maybe they are now considered an inside sales opportunity, or maybe they're now going to be going through, you know, matriculating through some marketing sequence of getting updates and things like that. And so they're, if you think of it kind of like a Venn diagram, you know, I think I've had experience in kind of each of the three, you know, those three segments of the Venn diagram. Um, I think, you know, for outbound, traditional outbound, really the, the companies that do that really effectively, they are brands. And I think that for someone who's new and starting a business, that's just not relevant for them. Uh, but I think that for a big brand like a Nike and Under Armour, um, you know, a lot of these consumer goods companies, um, food and beverage, things like that, like Budweiser and Coors, you know, they are really competing for mindshare and they're really competing for attention at like a whole different level. And so if you go to a big trade show like a CES, you're going to see Sony and Google and Amazon having these really big presences there. And a big part of the reason for that investment is that they just want people to see that they're doing well. They want to be seen as relevant. They want to be seen as, you know, leaders in that space of that trade show. And so, you know, the, like if you've ever exhibited at a trade show uh, for your business or you're considering it, you can see that the costs go up exponentially as kind of the booth gets bigger. And, you know, you start looking at the out of home advertising like billboards and, you know, different digital ads and things like that. Um, So I think that it's for a lot of the folks, my clients, and a lot of folks listening to this, that's just like a world that you're not going to compete in uh, for some time, maybe ever. (laughs) Um, I think that, you know, a lot of these more niche companies, direct to consumer companies are telling a specific story where people are going to want to find you. Uh, They're going to be looking for things that you're talking about. They're gonna be looking for things you're talking about on social media or maybe tutorials that you're making. Um, so I think that you know, for the purposes of this, what we're talking about here on the show, I think definitely inbound, maybe a little bit of outbound, like you said, to test some ideas, um, to test if you can pay to acquire customers and do that in a way that doesn't lose you money. Um, but if you're gonna do that, I think you need to be really disciplined about it and because you don't have the money that a big brand has to spend. So if you're going to be spending money on that instead of spending money on engineering or instead of spending money on, you know, your product in some way, you I think the biggest mistake I've seen new companies and, and even midsize companies make is that they spend the money without being deliberate about what they're testing, what they're trying to learn. They don't do the like scientific method uh, when they're doing these campaigns and things like that. And so they end up blowing 10, 20, 50, $100,000 without much to say for it besides saying, yeah, we tried and it didn't work. Um, so that would be my biggest caution about some of the more traditional advertising techniques. Um, I don't think they're going away, but I think that their relevance for new businesses and even medium sized businesses, I think the relevance is less compared to other ways of getting the message out.
0: Yeah. So I wanted to ask, uh, in a follow up to that, when you're talking about working with smaller companies and they blow all this money on these huge events, how much money do you recommend or what percentage of say their, their venture capital or their revenue should a company spend on marketing? And I know the answer is it depends, but what have you seen? normal like what in a normal like startup situation how much are they spending is it 50% is it 30% is it 80% on marketing efforts whether that's inbound or mark or outbound right
1: yeah that's a great question like you said it does vary widely now the biggest distinction is whether you're a venture backed business or or maybe if you're like a, a startup within a big company you know if you're a, if it's a big technology company who's got maybe an experimental project that they're working on, but they have access to resources kind of from the parent company, the mothership. Um, in that case, you're going to have a lot more budget to play with. And I've seen companies spend quite a significant percentage of their available resources on, on marketing and on sales and on getting the word out. Um, but I think for a, you know, realistic, realistically speaking for a smaller business, you can really only afford, uh, you know, if you think about it in terms of your product price and you've got your bill of materials cost, you can really, you only got so much margin to play with. I mean, maybe you've got, I, you know, in a perfect world, 50% gross margin and 30% net margin on your product. And, um, so you can, you know, you can increase spending if you've got pricing such that you can't afford it. You know, you can spend a couple of percentage points sort of on a per product basis, um, But if you're a bootstrap company, you just don't have a lot of money to play around with. And so I think being strategic is really important. Uh, I think the other thing that can be really valuable is being uh, repeated in in your investment. So if you're gonna sponsor uh, a content like a podcast or a YouTube channel, or if you're gonna go to a trade show, being in a place repeatedly so people see you there, it's a way for you to really become sort of associated with that community or that user base in a way that can be really valuable. Uh, I think with influencer marketing, there's ways to get in front of people for less money than you used to have to pay. Um, and so I think there's ways to do it where you can just spend a couple percentage points sort of relative to your product cost uh, if you're a bootstrap company. Um, and also unpaid ways like PR and getting on, you know, being interviewed in industry blogs and things like that. Um, but for startups, I've seen, I've seen them spend quite a lot of money. I mean, tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars a month on uh, ad campaigns and I think they're, they're playing a different game. And so if you're not financing your business in that way, it's important to not compare yourself to those businesses because the, how they measure success is very different. They're looking at growing and they're fine losing money, acquiring customers in the beginning. All they need over time is to prove that they can lower their cost of acquiring customers and then eventually do it in a way that's net profitable. But if you're a bootstrap company, you can't afford to spend, to lose $2,000 acquiring each customer because you're going to be out of money really fast. So that would be my one piece of advice is, you know, don't, don't compare um, to other companies if you see them out there a lot unless you really know about their financials and how they're operating because they might be competing in a very different way and measuring success in a very different way than you are.
0: Yeah, I've heard of I always hear about the 50% spend for venture backed companies and you're absolutely right, right? They're trying to acquire customers at an insanely large rate because that's how eventually they become profitable and hopefully the venture capitalists get their return on their investments, right? So they want really fast growth as quickly as possible. So they will spend thousands of dollars on these outbound campaigns. And I, I think of Sphero, right? that it's 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 a it's a cool company they make fun things and i remember seeing them with a giant booth at ces and i'm like that's a venture-backed startup that booth must have cost a million dollars right like they're spending a lot of money on this outbound because they're not only are they trying to create a cool product and get it out there but also appeasing their vc funders right they want to get they want to get that growth and their name out there so they throw a ton of money so i hear 50 percent at about you know, your spend rate for VC backed companies, but for bootstrapped, it's a lot less like you're saying. Um, that's where this idea of inbound marketing can really be helpful. The unfortunate thing about inbound marketing is it's not just throw a bunch of money and get customers. It, it's you're playing this really long game of creating content, building a community, finding followers, getting them to sign up for your email list or follow you on social, whatever it is, and then slowly marketing them over time. I will say that anytime I make content for a company, it might take months before I start seeing any sort of returns and people signing up or subscribing to that list because it takes a while for that content to get to, say, first page on Google where people outside of that initial subscriber list are starting to see it. That's how I make content, but that's not, the only answer so i wanted to get into some of the other options out there for people in doing inbound marketing and yes inbound marketing can be incredibly cheap but just understand that it a lot of times it does take you time to do it so the idea behind creating this content for inbound and inbound means you put something out there right and people can find it anybody out there ideally on the internet can find your content engage with it and either find it useful find it entertaining they like what you're about, it's authentic, and so they subscribe and follow you because they find you helpful. In the end, you ultimately want them to buy your product or service. It is still a form of marketing, but the idea is to authentically engage with people so that they view view you as a friend, confidant, and somebody that they trust rather than just you pushing a product on them like you would with, say, outbound marketing.
1: Yeah, and Sean, let me just ask you a quick clarifying question here. So. It sounds like with the inbound approach, you know, you're saying that a brand, a founder, they need to become their own publisher. They need to be making editorial decisions about what they think their audience is going to be interested in, that they can't just outsource it like you would outsource it by buying an ad and you, you're trusting that magazine to build the audience. You're saying that you need to kind of develop a different skill set to sort of anticipate what, you know, think of yourself as like a producer. Is
0: that right? Yes and no. If, if you have the time, absolutely. I think if you're a founder and you don't have the time partnering with somebody to help create that content is also totally acceptable, but you need to like as the founder and as the brand representative, you need to make sure that that content is engaging with the audience you think is going to be most apt to buy your stuff, right? You're, you're still, you're still the, the brand you're still the holder of all the keys to that brand. Make sure whoever you work with, whether you hire them as an employee, you contract it out, it's, it's, you know, a family member, whatever it is, make sure that they're representing you, right? You know, if it's, if it's I, I'm trying to engage with this super technical crowd and, you know, it's PhDs publishing papers, That's that's my audience, then, you know, they are likely not on Instagram. If it's like the super technical crowd, I've noticed that like, Instagram's not a hot spot for these technical discussions, whereas Twitter kind of is. So, if they're posting a bunch of stuff to Instagram because you read on a blog that Instagram's the new hotness, that's probably not the correct approach. So, I think a founder needs to be aware of who their audience is and understand what they should be marketing. They don't have to do all the work, they don't have to be the publisher. Work find somebody to help you with that.
1: Yeah. And so, that's got to be a relief, right? I mean, it's, a, I think just, publishing something in some way and getting the word out, just getting started with inbound. It doesn't have to be perfect from the beginning. You don't have to know everything from the outset.
0: Yeah, that's that's so true. I think there are things if you're a solo entrepreneur who wants to create this business, I think there are some things you can do that without partnering somebody, without having to pay extra money, you can create content on the side and do it in a low risk kind of way. So like social media allows for that. It allows for you to build a brand and micro blog, and you can do it, you know, two minutes every day talking about what you're building and build an audience that way. Um, that's a possibility. And that's one way to do it without spending a bunch of time writing blogs and making videos because writing good blogs and writing or creating good videos takes time. It absolutely takes time. And it's, that may not be the route for everybody. Totally. So to start that, so, so say you're a founder, right? To start that, I always tell people, right? People come ask me, they're like, how do I start with inbound marketing? I've had to answer this a few times. And my question back to them is always, who is your audience? You need to have a clear understanding of who's going to ultimately buy your stuff. And when I say an audience, that might be people who are potential customers. Ideally you want it to be a group of potential customers, but it's also people you imagine engaging with you and could eventually become customers. This whole idea of how to find this audience, we can talk about at length in, we can make several episodes about how to find this audience. But the basic idea is that these are the people who you want to eventually, or with a subset of that larger audience, The audience is people who engage with you and they read your blog, they watch your videos, they talk with you on Twitter, whatever it is, a subset of those you believe will be able to buy your product or service. Identifying who that is can be tricky. And I've done this through things with like, Surveys. If you have an existing audience, or you, or you can piggyback on somebody else's audience, you can run surveys. Um, I also recommend talking to friends and people you think might be useful. Like, create a mental model of who might buy this, and then find people you know that are like that, that fall into that group, and talk to them. Like, would you use this thing? You know, how do you how do you go about finding information about things like this? Or what things do you think would be helpful to use this thing? Right. Those are the kinds of questions that give you ideas for content. This is where outbound can be useful. You can run test ads. You can start running targeted ads for, say you create a white paper. You can start running targeted ads to collect emails on that white paper and say go through Facebook or Google and see what kinds of people are clicking through to that to help you develop an idea of who your audience might be, who engages with your content and who's interested in whatever technology it is. Um, you can also look through forums, you know, things like Stack Exchange and browse similar products, right? Go find things that are in the same vein of what you're planning to make, look for what else is out there and then see what other kinds of content they're creating and on what channels. And that's the other thing is channels. Um, This is where your audience hangs out, right? Is it a physical place? Do you meet people at conferences? That's what's actually worked for me to find my clients is I go to conferences and meet a bunch of people over and over again and develop a relationship and they can, a lot of times, they are interested in being clients or sorry many times not but a few become clients and i can create content for them um or do they hang out on social media right twitter instagram and facebook and tiktok they all have separate types of audiences they appeal to know who of those might be a better audience and go hang out on that platform right you'll read all the marketing stuff that says you need to have a presence on on everything I think it's good to buy out all the space, right? You know, when you register a business, go through and buy out the names for all of those or just register all the names. You don't necessarily have to engage on them, but I would say pick one initially that if you think it's useful, if you think it's tech people that hang out on Twitter, go hard on Twitter, ignore the rest, go hard on Twitter until you get a following there. Um, It might be YouTube. Like I said, creating videos can be very time-consuming. Um, or maybe it's Stack Exchange. Maybe you start answering questions on Stack Exchange or another form like EEV Blog or Hackaday or one of those. Um, or if it's like your maker crowd, maybe it's like Hackster or Instructables. Those project sharing sites are really good. Um, so start sharing your own projects on there, commenting on other people's stuff, trying to engage uh, that audience. And then also just reading other bro- blogs and tutorials. Um, the one that I think is neglected when we start talking about social and creating an audience is this idea of create a blog. And this is exactly what HubSpot does, right? You create a blog on HubSpot and they capture email and you create a list. And the idea is to create blogs that are, either people come back to read because it's something that's relevant or it's something useful, right? It's something that will sit on that first or second hit on Google as people look for how do I do X, Y, Z and your blog is number one and they click on that and it gives them useful information. You'll get millions of views if you're a popular hit like that. And that's how you can get people to your site. And that's how you get top of mind awareness through something like Inbound is what I found them to be the most effective.
1: Absolutely. And what's sort of striking me as you talk through this, I think that some founders might think of this and say, oh, well, Inbound is free. It seems much easier, much cheaper for me to do this, but it sounds like in order to do it right from what you've seen in your client work that while there may not be an upfront cost like there would be running an AdWords campaign, there is a cost in terms of time getting set up on platforms, there's trade-offs in terms of how many different platforms can you post on. If you're a blockchain company, does it make sense for you to be on TikTok? Maybe not. Uh, Or maybe yes, and maybe that's the perfect marketing campaign, I don't know. but it, I guess that sounds like a distinction here as we, as we get deeper into this, is that inbound may not have the same monetary cost as paid advertising, but that doesn't mean it's free.
0: Yes, absolutely. You will, you will be paying somehow, whether it's in time, and as they say, time is money, or you will be paying actual dollars for somebody to create it or to just say, you know what? We're not going to do this. Let's do outbound, right? And that's just you throw money at Google and they run your ads. Um, and, but there's still a lot of time that goes into understanding how Google ads work and measuring ROI. Like there's still time, but it's just not as time consuming as I would say, creating quality content that appeals to your potential audience.
1: Yeah. And I know that you do paid content work for clients. You've mentioned this a couple times, but there are a lot of people who do that with different areas and specialties and expertise. It's, it seems like that's something that a lot of brands do. They find an expert in the space to help make a project or, or tell a story, um, it seems like that, there's, that that's a pretty common practice and that a lot of companies have been really successful working with people like you, getting projects built and showing what's possible versus trying to like build a whole team in-house and hiring a bunch of people to do it full-time.
0: I've seen both work, and a lot of times when I see the like, pay somebody to build a project. That's usually falls under that influencer marketing where it's somebody's got a following on YouTube and a company will throw a bunch of money to make a special project for them. And so they leverage that creator's audience to be in front of them. So I see that usually falling under more influencer. Um, I don't see a whole ton of people doing what I do for YouTube where I sell like prepared videos for companies to put on their own site. A lot of times it's, it's like a sponsorship or something else. Um, there might be more of that. I usually see content creators for larger companies being internal employees who, who say, we need to, you know, they're part of the marketing team and they go, well, we need to create stories and content. So here's what we're gonna do. Um, I do see Adafruit doing a lot of exactly what you're talking about though. And that is they pay um, to have content produced on their site. So they, they do contract um, and it looks like it works really well. They've got a lot of projects that are created on their site um, and it's really cool. It's a big library of stuff that you can look at. Um, but, a po- but contrast to, that to SparkFun, SparkFun does almost exclusively internally created projects and tutorials. And that also seems to work, right? If, if you search for, I think, what is voltage, it's one of SparkFun's, it's one of the top Google hits. SparkFun did a good job of creating that you know, five six years ago, when they did this big push for content, and they had a bunch of internal engineers write content, and that seems to work very well. So if you Google yeah. search what is Voltage, it I, last I checked, it was it was a SparkFun page. Um, it was not one I wrote, um, but it was a it was a good push by SparkFun to do that. So I've seen I've seen them both. I think more companies tend towards, especially larger companies, tend towards internal people. Um, but you're absolutely right. I think there is a market to have content creators being contracted. I don't think it needs to be internal people doing this. So if you're bootstrapping, consider that, right? Hire somebody part-time to create content for you.
1: Yeah, my experience, and there's I guess really ultimately, there's no one way to do it, right? It depends on sort of how you wanna grow your business and where you see your points of differentiation. If making YouTube videos and having a person who can do that full-time is something that you see as being a big differentiator for your business, maybe you invest in that. Um, but maybe it's not in my experience, you know, I've seen both clients and also previous, you know, previously working for places full time, uh, that there's a lot of content that could have been made that wasn't being made because people didn't have the time to do it. And there was concern about having it being just right and pitch perfect and hitting all the right notes. And there was a fear of failure or a fear of criticism from, you know, people on the internet because people on the internet can be mean sometimes. And, uh, Ultimately, I think, you know, it was a disservice to the the brands and to the users that the companies didn't do a better job getting more content out there. And I think being open to different ways of getting it done um, can make this maybe possible for for a founder in a way that um, if they're only thinking about doing it one way, you know, you might not do it at all. And you really you're almost you're it's a long term trade off because content has, you're describing that, what is voltage page from five or six years ago, that's probably still returning visitors to SparkFun site today, five or six years later, versus like a paid ad campaign. And so I think sometimes when people defer doing content marketing, they're not really paying the true cost of that today. They're paying the true cost of that over time because of that long tail of return that you get on content. They're not gonna get that in the future. Um, and so I think it's, that's a, maybe a cost of not doing it now and a cost of maybe being too narrow about how you wanna make content. that's what I've seen in the past. Um, definitely a
0: mistake I've seen made uh, repeatedly. And I also think you bring up a very good point. I think a lot of marketers focus on this idea of making something viral and you cannot make something viral. I can't stress that enough. There is no viral button, right? the idea of making a viral video does not exist. You, you make a video, you make a piece of content and you hope and pray it goes viral. If you've made something that resonates with your audience so well that they share it with three people and those three people share it with those, with their three friends. And that's what becomes viral. That just means you've created a good piece of content. You can't make it viral. So when you're creating content, I see a lot of marketers, especially, focus on, we need it to be flashy, we need it to be funny, we need to have storytelling, and it's like, I've spent a lot of time trying to create all of those. I think there are a few people in this world, like a relatively small percentage, who have a knack for being natural entertainers, and a lot of social media, and YouTube especially, is biased towards giving entertainment and that's what those platforms exist for i don't have a problem with that right i i tune into youtube and i want to see somebody throwing a bowling ball off a bridge because it's funny in the name of science which is like bs science but it's fun to watch it's not particularly entertaining or excuse me it's not particularly educational but it is very entertaining and that's what those platforms exist for so if you're great at that lean into that as much as you can I'm not a particularly great entertainer. I'm a much better better educator. And that's where you get into this idea of long tail, right? Instead of making something that's entertaining, or I would say entertaining slash newsworthy. And I'm gonna put those in like maybe two different categories where like I make something entertaining, right? It's the next viral cat video, and I've got a knack for making memes, and that gets shared with a million people. Great, that's one thing. And maybe you throw your brand in there somehow, right? Oh, I'm gonna light my product on fire, haha! Ha, because we can, and it gets shared to a million people. Awesome! You've made an entertaining thing that has no useful value outside of people get a laugh for one minute, and you get a little bit of brand recognition. But moving beyond that, you also have, I would say, you, you can cover news. You can do things like I'm going to talk about what's newsworthy, what's relevant, what is you you know, how is your government responding to something in the tech world, right? like something like that or somebody created a project and I'm going to share that project and talk about what its implications are. I'm going to call that relevant n- and newsworthy. There's a few sites like um Hackaday or Slashdot or TechCrunch that do those tech news things very well. It's it's honestly hard to compete with some of those that are so focused on just tech news. But there is I believe still a niche to be had especially if you're doing a niche product or niche service to create this you know, news sharing kind of thing of what's new. It's, but it's a pain in the butt. You have to do that all the time. You have to be regular about it. Once a day, once a week, once a whatever. And then finally we have the realm that I like to play in. And that is your, what they call ever, the marketers call it evergreen content. That is content that like you were saying, Harris, you know, Sparkfun writes this, what is voltage tutorial? And you know, for the first six months, it gets like three whole views but then suddenly, over time, it makes its way to that top of the Google results, and then they get millions of views a year. That's evergreen, and it keeps producing those views time after time for years to come, right? An engineer sat down and had to really conceptualize, how do I describe voltage to somebody who doesn't know what voltage is? And you write this thing, it might take a week to, to conceptualize and write a great article, but you get time and time and time again, just over the years, and you know to this day, Years later, that's still generating views for SparkFun. That is evergreen content. That's what I like to focus on. That's where it's more educational. That's where you get into your tutorials, your how to's, picking something relevant and giving people some kind of useful information that they can engage with. Even if it's, you know, if you can be entertaining, great, do that. But if not, you can definitely be useful. Does that make sense?
1: that makes perfect sense. And and when you say educational, that doesn't have to be like a class tutorial either. I mean, just something that educates the user. That could be a hobbyist or
0: a professional engineer. It could be anybody, right? Yes, absolutely. And 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 it could just be like, hey, here's how you do this thing in this in this language that I discovered. There's a lot of great tech blogs out there that I pull a lot of code from where it's like, Oh, Hey, you have to pass this pointer this way, right? That's, that's useful. That's, I would call that educational years. Li- you know, in 2015, somebody wrote, you know, how to pass a pointer as a, uh, as a parameter in C guess what? I'm still going there to look at that, to see how they did it. That's educational. Yeah,
1: it's, it's like when you find those Stack overflow comments from like six years ago, you know, I, I feel like, especially if you're any sort of open source, tool, like if you're running Ubuntu or anything like that, and you search a weird error, and it's like, oh yeah, someone solved this before, and it's buried in a comment thread. (laughs) And it sounds like what you're saying is that even if like Voltage, even if someone's done it before in some way, if you can add your own twist to it, that you're potentially adding value for for your audience, for your learners. I mean, obviously a million people have talked about Voltage before, but obviously SparkFun was able to put together something compelling and something interesting in a way that stood out over time. So you don't even have to be the most original necessarily, or the best entertainer necessarily, and so it seems like the bar, as we're going here, the you keep lowering the bar in terms of who you know who should or consider making content that you don't have to be the best or the newest or the most original or the most entertaining. <laughs>
0: Correct. Yeah. You, I, I guarantee, every person can be useful to somebody else in some form or fashion, right? And if you cr- if you make yourself useful, you will find people that engage with you. Right. And, and that's, you know, when I say making yourself useful, I just mean be help, help somebody, right? Show them how to do something that somebody else I struggled with this today and I didn't find a good answer on the internet. Let me write a three sentence thing on my blog and somebody else is probably going to have the same problem and go- they will find you through Google eventually. And that's where I believe that a lot of that evergreen content comes from. In fact, there's a, Fantastic book that I want to recommend if you're getting into this. It's utility, y o u, tility, y o u t i l i t y. So it's like a portmanteau of you and utility. It's by Jay Bear, and the tagline for it is: If you sell something, you make a customer today. If you help someone, you make a customer for life. And that's exactly what we're getting at. Make content that's useful for people, and they will continue to engage with you and do it not from a place of trying to push your product or your service on them. Do it from an actual, genuine, authentic way of, I want to help somebody have a better day. I want to help somebody solve this problem. In the book, he talks about why outbound is failing, why that's dying, and he gives some practical tips to creating useful content for audiences. And he gives one example that I thought was really cool, and this is the this is a Twitter handle at Hilton suggests, and it's officially run by the Hilton hotels. And the idea is that it gives travel tips to anybody. So anybody can hashtag them, or I I believe they look for various hashtags of like hashtag travel, hashtag vacation, or hashtag whatever city they're in. And a number of people, a number of employees within Hilton have access to this account. So a concierge in Atlanta, might have access to this and somebody says, hey, I'm traveling to Atlanta. Um, What are some cool things to go see? And Hilton suggests all the people who have access to it are encouraged to reply to it and just give tips, regardless of whether the vacationers are staying at a Hilton hotel. That's a perfect example of this utility-based content marketing and doing it with social media, right? These are concierges who, you know, sit at a desk a lot of the times, you know, when they're not helping somebody and they can, be helping people have a better time in the city and that's perfect content marketing.
1: That's awesome. I had not heard of that before. That's pretty fun. And I you know, I think sometimes you see a lot of examples of brands sort of falling flat and I think it's important to be authentic to sort of what what is it that you represent in that case it's service you know, the idea of a concierge having suggestions on where to go. And, you know, it's just kind of very consistent with what you would associate with, you know, upper middle tier uh, hotel, uh, which is that they would have someone who's informed and educated and friendly about kind of what you can do and how you can do it. Um, that's, That's a really good example.
0: Yeah. So I know we have to wrap it up pretty soon here, but before we go, I wanted to ask you, how much success have you seen with HubSpot? It's I know it's quite an expensive service to use. I've heard very high success rates from people and great ROI, um, assuming you use it right. And they have training and all sorts of things. So I'm curious, what have you seen with HubSpot? And I've used it a little bit with SparkFun, but like just enough to like post a thing and measure some people signing up for emails. So what's been your experience with it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, since we're breaking the fourth wall here a little bit more, let me also talk about You know content marketing in the in the form of this show and you know our intention in making it part of it is to just kind of get the word out and talk about things that we're interested in and so you know just if you're listening to this and you think it's interesting the themes that we're talking about it might cross your mind hey maybe sean and harris could help me or help someone who i know with my business that's our intention in making this content, by the way. And you know we can be totally open about that because we're running our own businesses and we're always looking for kind of interesting folks uh, to work with and one way is just by hopefully we're creating value for you in the show and this discussion is useful for you. And so if you feel that happening at all as you're listening to this, uh, maybe content marketing is working, maybe we're doing a good job of it. It's totally meta, not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. And so assuming that it is working, assuming any part of this, you think, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, the next thing would be, you know, you get that person's interest and you then they end up being con- tracked through uh, some type of system. And HubSpot is a couple of different platforms at once. And I've been having a positive experience with it overall. And I know my clients in general have been. Uh, they've got a CRM, a customer relationship management software, but then they've also got a service pack and a marketing pack. Uh, so there's kind of the three primary tools that are available through the platform uh, and they do have a free service a, a zero priced version of it and then you know you pay for additional features as you sort of scale and ramp up um, i think you know initially the free aspect of it i think is probably what attracts people to it in general the crm itself though you're going to see over time as you use it it really does necessitate in time adopting that Inbound approach. Uh, there are other CRMs that are going to have better tools for doing outbound, uh, for doing prospecting, for reaching out to people who don't know you, who may have uh, more sophisticated marketing automation, especially for bigger companies. Um, you know, using tools like Marketo and um, Pardot or Pardot. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Um, that would like integrate with like a Salesforce. So I think that. You know, it has its limitations, especially in time. I think the free aspect of it is what draws people in originally. And I do think that it's a good initial platform just to get started in and keep track of tasks. But that would be the main thing I would say is that in time, it's important to recognize that it's built to really build your business in a certain type of way. Um, The features that I find have been really helpful for customers uh, of mine is, and for my own business as well, is using the pipeline feature to track deals as they're moving through, uh, tasks to keep track of following up and what you're trying to do. Uh, in time, you can do things like lead scoring to you know, measure if people are repeatedly reading your email newsletter, revisiting your website, maybe going to like a pricing page on your website, which might be a nice indicator of their intent, uh, their interest. Uh, whereas maybe if they go to like a jobs page or a careers page, Uh, That would indicate, well, maybe this isn't a prospective customer. It's interesting, maybe they're a prospective employee or an applicant, um, but the fact that maybe they keep going back to the jobs page and refreshing that maybe suggests that they don't want to buy our product, but they just want to work for us instead. Um, So I think that would be my kind of initial broad brush response. I think that... um, the the inbound approach is something that you really need to buy into if you want to use HubSpot in the long run. I think in the short run, it is a useful tool regardless. Uh, It has some really nice integrations, some very nice workflows around calendaring, scheduling meetings, um, reminders, and basically ways to be efficient as like an operator, as a a user within the system. Um, So I think it stands on its own. um, But I think that depending on how you're finding your customers and plan on growing your business, there might be other tools like a Salesforce, like a pipe drive. Um, You know, Zendesk has, they required base CRM and that would be an example of a CRM that integrates more with like the service and support side of the business. So if you see sort of, if you have like big renewals and customers that are with you for a long time and that eventually you up up, up them uh and that they are primarily a service-based business maybe you want to pick a crm that integrates more with your ticketing and hubspot has that but there are others that are built for that um, so you know i think that's the, the biggest thing i think people get caught up a lot in like pricing and sort of like flashy demo features Um, I think that probably gets people off track in terms of what they really need. But anyway, CRM is like a whole different episode that I think we could do on its own on the show. Um, But that's kind of my meandering uh, gut on HubSpot. In general, I like it. uh, And I know a lot of people have been really successful
0: growing their businesses with it. Good to know. I, I was very curious. Like I said, I've briefly used it. I know that you can definitely create content without it, but it does offer some useful metrics and integration with like your CRM or capturing emails and whatnot. So that's really cool.
1: Yeah. And it integrates with other, you know, web hosting platforms like, you know, WordPress, um, and it integrates, uh, it seems like there's some degree of integration between, uh, HubSpot and like a MailChimp. Uh, I know that people are using Zapier to connect a lot of other things with HubSpot. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to kind of get at, Uh, building a tech stack that's going to support doing content marketing. Um, But I think just making the content isn't enough. Uh, It does ultimately, you know, you want to have a full end-to-end consideration of the customer experience and getting the content is one thing, but maybe getting future content or learning more about the product or making a purchase. There is the later stages of that funnel, that sales marketing funnel, where it all comes together. Uh, And then, of course, the post-sale support um, so I think that's where HubSpot is a, is a nice example of a tool that allows you to kind of tie it all together, but certainly it's not the only way to do it. Yeah.
0: I, I think it's time for us to wrap this up. So I wanted to bring together a lot of the things we've been talking about. If you are interested in doing content marketing, few things to keep in mind is one, be helpful, be useful. You can, if you can be entertaining and you have a habit of making things, go viral not that you can make things go viral lean into that that's great but you can always be useful to people that creates good content figure out who your audience is and Harris one important thing you brought up is this is this idea of doing it scientifically seeing what works but keep in mind that a lot of this useful evergreen content you can take or it can take months in order to see any returns on the things you've created. So approach it scientifically, but understand you might be looking at months to measure something. I think that's all we have for today. Anything you wanted to add?
1: No, I really like that we had an early episode on this. I think it's really important. I really believe in this as a tool, uh, as a way to grow businesses. I've seen a lot of clients get a lot of success using it. So
0: thanks for guiding the discussion. Absolutely. And we can get into even deeper stuff. If you want to start talking search engine optimization, how do you come up with titles? You know, what are some, what are, what makes for a good tweet? We can talk about those in future episodes, but I'm glad we were able to do this early and give a broad overview in case somebody's curious, like what can I do to get started? Hopefully there's some things you can start digging into for that. All right. With that, I think that's all we've got for this episode. I hope everyone has a fantastic day and happy hacking. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please
1: subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at Hello Blink Show. Find show notes at Helloblinkshow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skalresa LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at SoundCloud.com/slash Amin Maxwell slash routine.